the old sloganeering of go fight win, let's beat the competition and be number one, it doesn't really get most people out of bed, including as we found a lot of the leaders that we spoke to. It doesn't motivate them to get out of bed either in the morning. They want to have be up to something bigger than just that. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Paul Lenwand and Matt Manny. Paul's in Chicago. Matt, although he's American, is in Amsterdam. And these guys are both with Strategy And, which is PwC's global strategy consulting business. They work with boards, management teams, helping them with strategy, growth, capability building. And the book that they've written that we're talking about today is Beyond Digital. So they did a big research project. They went out to their customer base, the customer base of Strategy And, and they said, look, what are the challenges that you're working on and who do you admire? They then did a big research project looking at which companies had successfully done a digital transformation. So in the past, you might have looked like somebody like IBM who'd gone from selling hardware to creating a consulting business. In this case, they look at Philips, they look at Komatsu, we talk a little bit about Starbucks. And what is it that these businesses had to do? What did they have to change in their leadership team? What did they have to change in their business? What did they have to put in place to come up with a plan and execute on the plan? What is the process of, of that strategy change? What needed to be different? Some of the things we talk about are, are having a purpose, being outcome-oriented, having a new social contract with your employees. It's really good stuff. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting to the guys today. I'm surely enjoy it as well. Dom, good to be here. Paul Leinwand. I'm a partner with Strategy Ant, which is PwC's strategy consulting business. I live in Chicago. I teach strategy at Northwestern's Kellogg School and uh, have been doing a lot of interesting work with executives and boards over many years across many industries. So look forward to the conversation. Great. And Matt Money, also with uh, Strategy and PwC Strategy Consulting Business. I'm based in uh, Amsterdam. And along with having the dubious distinction of being the co-author of a book with Paul Leinwand, I also serve as a leader of our transformation practice across PwC and work with companies on uh, business model transformation. Fantastic, gents. Thank you for coming on the show today. The, the book Beyond Digital, right, where you talk about transformation, digital transformation, what people need to do. Why did you feel there was a gap? The gap, I think, is quite apparent 
when you speak to most executives, right? The world right now and most organizations are digitizing. That's the theme. And we're getting very familiar with all forms of digital. Uh, we were just having a conversation about the metaverse, which is the next topic for executives to work their way through. But if all you're doing is trying to catch up with everybody else and making investments to digitize, you're not spending enough time likely on the real questions of, are you adding value to your customers and society? What are you doing to prepare your organization to really be differentiated? Digital can be an ingredient to that, but it can't be the main show. We've got to get companies to step back and address some of these fundamental questions. You know what? In my mind, I'm, I'm reminded of a hotel I stayed in in Bulgaria. It wasn't one of the Soviet ones. It was a newer Bulgarian apart hotel in a ski resort. But I checked in and along one wall in the lounge were kitchen cupboards. Because obviously in an apart hotel, you have to have a kitchen. But they'd forgotten to put in the cooker or the microwave, or any water, or a fridge, or in fact, any cutlery. Or So they'd sort of seen a picture of what it looked like to have an apart hotel, and they'd copied the picture, but they didn't understand what they needed. And that's what you said about the digitization. People are copying what other people are doing because they think they have to catch up. But without really understanding what you're trying to do, you're wasting your time, do you think? Yeah, and to add to that, I think what's happening is a lot of companies are spending literally billions of dollars, not even just uh, hundreds of millions, on all sorts of digital initiatives across their companies, not because they're unimportant. They might actually be very important, but nevertheless, taking on all these initiatives, yet finding that they aren't differentiating themselves. They aren't necessarily creating any substantive competitive differentiation, any tremendous new value. It's just all about keeping up with the Joneses. So even though we argue, we're not saying, you know, digitization is some terrible thing and you shouldn't do it. But what we do lay out is how do you do it in a way that actually moves you forward? And for that, you have to think beyond digital, as the title itself indicates. What's your definition of transformation then? Because a lot, I speak to people all the time who say we're doing a digital transformation. In fact, many of our clients work in the digital transformation doing space. And yet, often when I speak to them about the work they're doing for clients, it, it is a bit mundane. It's not really transformation. It's just digitizing. So look, the word transformation itself, right, is to transcend the form. And so that means actually not just digitizing yourself so that you're a digital version of what you did before, but actually creating something fundamentally different, something fundamentally differentiated. Now, it also doesn't mean throwing everything out you did before and going after, chasing after some dream, becoming something completely different either. But it does mean taking forward the, your strengths and then coupling that with new capabilities in a way that's relevant for society and for customers that you're looking to serve it, not just in the present tense, but also towards the future. So you have something you're growing into. You, in some ways, have to transform towards a destination. And I think often we don't see destinations. And destinations to us are organizations that are shaping their future. They're not waiting for something to come. They're not worried about being disrupted. They have defined a bold aspirational promise that is needed in society, needed in their customers. And that's the destination. If you can get that right, then we can start arguing about how do I get from A to B? But if I haven't defined the destination in a bold way, if I'm my destination is just to catch up or to put in place some new capability, 
that's a pretty weak form of a destination to transform to. And in a large organization with legacy revenue, that's really hard. You can sit down and say to people, look, let's look at Netflix versus Blockbuster. You can say that all day long. And from the outside, you can go, feels to me a lot like your business is like Blockbuster. Then you're sitting with the leadership team and they try and rationalize the pace of progress or the fact that they don't need a, a bold vision. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so important, you know, even even the very first impaired leadership imperative we lay out in our book is reimagine your company's place in the world, which is all about looking into the future and looking at how what is it that your customers or that society needs that you can be relevant to. I don't love sort of using fear as a way to motivate people by saying, you know, well, you know, your business is going to go bankrupt even though that may well be the case. But <laughs> I do think it's uh, much more important to look forward and say, okay, well, look, what is the real purpose we're here to serve? And how is that going to be relevant three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? And how do I now shape towards that future as opposed to just, you know, continuing to do whatever I've done forever and hoping that it stays relevant? I mean, there's some good examples in the book, Dom, around this. So, you know, Phillips certainly had a lot of that revenue you were talking about, right? They had a lighting business, a personal electronics business, but they saw the future in healthcare. And they didn't just see it in the devices they made, the products they made, they saw it in a different version of the future, right? Where they focused on solutions for human beings rather than pieces of a broader problem. And they found the mechanism to transform, right? You know, essentially becoming a healthcare business and losing the others. And so I think there's some great stories but I agree with your point. When you're staring at a lot of revenue and a lot of profit and short-term targets, you might see some ideas in the future, but it does take a bold executive to lay out a path to get there. But we need them to do that. Is it an individual often in the organizations where you've seen they've pulled this off? Is it somebody, some person who can see what the future might be? I think it's a combination of things, you know. So one of the companies, for example, that we had the privilege to spend some time with is uh, Komatsu. So it's a Japanese uh, heavy machinery and uh, earth-moving equipment company. And they do a number of other things, of course. I'm not doing justice in the description. But, you know, when they talked about their transformation, that came from, one, yes, a combination of leadership looking into the future and, and seeing what purpose they could serve, but also feedback that they were getting from their customers. And that is something that we heard very consistently, actually, across a number of the companies, that the seed for transformation, in many cases, came from what they were seeing and hearing in the market and recognizing that what their customers were looking for was a better solution. In Komatsu's case, you know, they could have continued to make more earth-moving equipment and made it smarter and attached IoT and data and metrics to it and so forth. But the real need of their construction company customer was, hey, how do I actually complete my construction job on time and solve the issues that I have around labor, around sustainability, around utilization, all these other broader issues which their customer really needed to have solved. And that's what became the inspiration then to transform their business. Historically, they probably didn't even know who those customers were because they would have sold the machinery into distribution. Somebody else would have done the maintenance of those. And you see that, you see that trend everywhere from Mercedes-Benz to Lego, where it's instead of just selling this, now we need a direct relationship with our customers. And at last, we're going to find out who they are and know them. And we can do something something 
to deliver some value to them directly rather than just into the channel or through retail? It's in fact, one of the biggest lessons from the companies and the research was this idea of privileged insights, right? That in order to go figure out the future, but maybe more importantly, to stay with the future, right? You've got to have a relationship. You've got to have a trusted relationship with your customers. You can be learning from them. And it's not like market research, right? That's, I think, kind of not as effective anymore because market research is accessible to anybody. Your competitors can do the same survey or focus group. This is about your customers engaging with you in the cycle of the business that they're working with and learning every step of the way. So when they call you know, for warranty support or customer service, that's a touch point. You're learning more. You're providing services so that they're willing to give you more information. This is so important. And the examples, I think, in the book on this topic were really very compelling. You know, Zara, we certainly know that story well with all the fast fashion, but what they're doing to learn what happens when you walk in the store, what you're buying, what you're asking for, what colors are going to be interesting to that particular local population? How do they get that into the innovation process right away? Incredibly important for their business model. How did you go about doing the research? Like what were you doing? Sitting in the pub one night and you said, right, let's do, um, let's write this book on digital transformation, right? How did you start the process of going out and doing this research? Well, I certainly wish we had done it in the pub. I, that might have been a whole, <laughs> a whole different book. It would have been a lot of fun. No, but look, it actually started with a broad survey that we did globally. And we asked companies, actually, who in your industry do you want to learn from? Who do you admire? Who do you respect? And so, you know, we well, got that list. And then from there, we had to look at companies that had actually been through some form of transformation and had the results to show for it. Because what really the question we were seeking to answer is, are there companies who've managed to really transform and compete in the digital era? So it wasn't as interesting to us to go learn from the latest and greatest digital startup and try to copy what they were doing. Because also the companies we were talking to, were they were companies that had established revenues and figuring out, well, how do I take this difficult journey? Once we looked at that list of who are the companies that have succeeded in their transformation, they have the results to show for it, then we reached out to actually engage with their leadership teams and the 12 companies we had the privilege to profile are those where we could actually talk to their leadership teams and learn from them, not just all the things that they did well, but also, frankly, some of the mistakes they made along the way and the how of what they went through their journey, which I think is in many ways even more interesting than the what they did. And so what, I guess the leadership transformation precludes or start, but you can't do the business without the leadership change. But if you take Philips for an example, they now have a healthcare business and there's other bits of the business that they no longer have. It's tough to get the people in the business that's going to be not part of the future to take part in the conversation about what this new future might be. You know, I remember reading the case that Netflix case study where Reed Hastings said, look, the guys who run the DVD business, I just stopped inviting them to the management meetings because they that was the past and the streaming business was the future. And they kept wanting resources to bolster the DVD rental business. And that shows up all day, every day in organizations with legacy revenue. Indeed. I mean, and look, there, of course, there are many different ways to do this. I think in the Philips case, part of what we learned from them is that's also why they chose to concentrate on healthcare. So they were a multi-industry conglomerate and they knew that they couldn't give equal energy to the transformations of the lighting industry or the consumer electronic industry in healthcare. And so 
what they did was to say, look, you know, you go create an exciting future for yourself to those other parts of the organization. That's why they divested and then really chose to refocus their energies in this one particular sector where they've had uh, some considerable success. What do you have to change in the leadership team? I think a lot needs to change in the leadership team. You know, if we're asking organizations to transform the way that, you know, Matt defined, the mechanism that we have to do that is really the leadership team. And by the way, this replicates itself all throughout the organization because there's usually dozens of leadership teams that are responsible to make change happen. First of all, leadership teams kind of reflect the old view of like, I bring a bunch of people, they probably own P&Ls, maybe functions together. They show up for the meeting and they're there to react often to the fires and the needs of the organization. The organization brings leadership teams decisions to make, right? That has to change, right? We need leadership teams to recognize that, yes, they're there to resolve disputes, but they are there to lead. They are there to transform. They are there to shape their future. That's massively important. Many CEOs often say, you know, they, they spend all their day just responding to emails from other people and addressing phone calls and meetings that other people are setting up. Well, that's the CEO that they need to go figure out what they're doing. The second thing is the team itself has to change, right? Has to become reflective of the future. So if you're building capabilities in really important areas, maybe it's the metaverse, maybe it's something else. You need people on the leadership team that own those outcomes that need to be driven with their customers, right? So maybe the traditional roles aren't going to work. You also need more diversity on the leadership team and not just in the classic sense, but diversity of opinions and views so that you can challenge the status quo so that when people say, yeah, we're doing fine over here, someone else can say, yeah, fine is okay for the next year, but what are you going to do the year after that? And finally, that team needs to work as a team, right? It's not enough just to come to a meeting and kind of hope that nobody bothers your own business and you can walk out of there unscathed. No, the point of coming to the meeting is to work on things. I think in COVID, we had management teams working on things, right? They were working on policy changes. So we have good examples where management teams can come together, but that has got to shift in a pretty big way. And by the way, that for me is one of the biggest and most important things that has come out of this work is this imperative for leadership teams to truly collaborate and work together as opposed to competing for the top job and be willing to subsume their own uh, individual agenda towards a bigger, a greater agenda that's around their collective effort. And there's a lot that's been written, for example, about teams. And sometimes, you know, you have sports personalities coming and talking to business people about what it's like to work in teams. But I don't know that that has really been taken on in earnest. And I think that is really something that's important for all of us in business to get on with. When I work with maybe smaller or mid-market businesses, they have this mistaken belief, I think, that larger companies have their shit together. It's just illuminating that you say, right, these teams who are running these larger organizations aren't operating as a team. My analogy is seven-year-olds playing football. You know, the striker comes off and says to his mum, I scored two goals, I'm great. Completely missing the fact the team got beaten 5-2. And it's that outcome for the team, not the outcome for the individual P&L holder. And it's that they've got their elbows out to the top, but actually, if they don't play as a team... They'll never get that change. 
Yeah, and look, I don't blame uh, leadership teams or large organizations necessarily for it. It's all an outcome of this construct that we've had for so many years, which has all, all been about individual leaders leading from the front. You know, how many times have you heard that? You know, you have to lead from the front and lead from the top, and it's all about just tone at the top. And, and so we have created this hero-only culture for a very long time. And as the data and research that we have in the book shows that there's a need for a different kind of leader today, one who can be both the hero leader, but also humble and have the humility to know when they don't have the answers, to step back, to lead from the back of the room, to allow others the space to grow and lead, you know, instead of them. And a whole host of other leadership paradoxes that we lay out in addition to that. I have to just comment on the, the analogy, Dom, which, which I think is awesome. But I also think it's pretty instructive for us because Matt describes the behaviors of these teams. Well, it probably starts way earlier than that. Look how we reward people. You know, look how people can judge their own metric of success, right? We don't typically give them a lot other than how fast did they move in their roles? How much did they get paid? How much kind of external recognition did they get? There's some organizations that really do a great job to make people sort of really connect with purpose. But for most organizations, employees can't connect with purpose. And so they look at these very basic measures of how are they doing? Well, bring that forward to a leadership team. And it's a lot of these behaviors that have been embedded for years and years, maybe from the football game to that day, the behavior's got to change. Like people have to check their mental energy coming into the meeting. Like, am I here to go solve a pretty big issue with my colleagues or am I not? That question needs to be asked every single meeting. And so often, well, many of those meetings that I've been in, it's uh, lots of PowerPoint and people telling each other how busy they've been rather than actually, you know, the sort of brains trust and what is the biggest strategic imperative and fix it. And you see people in, in that new type of meeting and it's way more interesting to be in the second meeting than in the first meeting. One of the things you talk about in the book, though, is that the companies have to change the way in which the social contract with their people. Tell me more about that. What we lay out in the book is that this is an imperative for every business. This is not about just doing good or being worried about what millennial employees need and therefore we need to you know, treat people more nicely. But even as a strategic imperative, when you start competing on the basis of capabilities, and capabilities as we define them are some combination of your own IP processes, know-how, culture, and people. You find very quickly that people are at the center of that. So you do need to shift from the old model of just paying someone to show up and do a job and then you know punch the time clock and then take off to really connecting their purpose with your company's purpose. That's not just a nice thing to do, it's, it's essential. You need to be able to empower those people to collaborate and work together in ways that they are empowered to go solve problems. You need to actually invest in their own development so that they are actually growing and learning and they can respond to your customers' needs and keep innovating and keep your company on the cutting edge, if you will. Because you, know, you just simply can't drive that from the top. And there are many great examples that we lay out in the book. And one of the ones that I particularly love is the example of Microsoft, which we've all known Microsoft for a number of years, and they were known for being a 
a very product-centric organization and very much focused on how many software licenses they were selling, then they had to really pivot to a, a world where they had to get interested in customer outcomes as they move to a software as a service business. It's all about, well, you know, if people are actually getting the outcomes they want, they're going to use more of your services. And if not, they won't. And in order to do that, they recognized they had to bring together people from different teams to work together and then really shift the contract that they had with these folks to say that look, you part of what you're up to at Microsoft is actually a mission of serving the world. It's not just here to work for a big software company and get a nice salary. Well, a great example where in some ways there's a parallel with the earth machinery example from earlier, right? There they were selling a license. We don't know what people do with it. We sort of don't care. We don't know who they are. And then I think the numbers I have in my mind is if you move a dollar of server licensing to Azure, it goes from $1 to $7, right? So how would you get people to pay seven times? Well, it can't be the same thing, right? So then it has to be outcome-based. So now we have an outcome-based model and we can charge more because there's consumer, the customer sees more value and it's a win-win. Yeah, and if you don't reinvent the social contract with your people, how do you motivate your people to want to do that? And in the old sloganeering of go fight, win, let's beat the competition and be number one, it doesn't really get most people out of bed, including as we found a lot of the leaders that we spoke to. It doesn't motivate them to get out of bed either in the morning. They want to have be up to something bigger than just that. One of the really great examples, and this was in our previous book, was Starbucks. Howard Schultz kind of had this sort of out there expression that they're going to create the third place. I remember wondering, what is the third place? Uh, and he's like, well, yeah, we got we got work and we have home and we've got to create this third environment. Got it. Okay, that's that's pretty bold. But he spent a lot of time with his team thinking about every interaction that a customer would have with an employee to create the third place because it's not enough just to serve you coffee. And he had to think about, are these going to be owners? How do I make sure they're really in it for the right reasons? How do they understand that their role is so critical in the third place? And so this gets designed, it's, it's aspirational, but it gets designed in these capabilities in a very specific and actionable way. That's where you bring it to life. And that's where people understand their role and are motivated to go in the journey with you rather than, yes, as Matt said, I'm here for a job, which is fine, but that's not going to be enough for some of the transformations that we have in front of us. Yeah, and you can see the link there all the way down to what that means to you as a barista inside a Starbucks. You've got some clarity about where the business is going and where it how it creates value. So often, you know, when leaders write down our purpose or our vision, you know, it's sort of blah, 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 blah. And even if the employees can remember it, there's no motivation and can't be used on a day-to-day basis to make a decision between doing X or Y, or even query whether X or Y are the right things to do. Yeah. And more importantly, I think in the example Paul laid out is that the individual person also sees how what they do contributes to that value. That's the crucial thing. Even if you buy into the company's value, all wonderful, but then, okay, what's my role in that? And once you get that and you have the means as well to actually live towards that value contribution and you know that you're in an environment where a company supports you to come up with new ideas to serve that value contribution, that's a completely different kind of relationship. And what um, you talk about in the book about ecosystems, what, what's the best example there of, of creating value from creating an ecosystem? 
that you came across? I think actually one of the best examples is is what Matt described with Komatsu. So part of the story was, yes, like we've got to go solve the problem at the construction site. But Komatsu was just one player and probably one player of many, many and not always big organizations, sometimes smaller organizations that would you know, contribute to a construction site. So they decided the only way to solve this was through an ecosystem, sharing data about how every player shows up, even competitor data. That way you'd get information on timeliness, safety, construction efficiency. That ecosystem is incredibly powerful. It's not a platform. You know, they're not requiring everybody to somehow buy something from Komatsu, but they've established this information for the betterment of everyone. Right. So what I think we see now is that ecosystems can look and feel very different. But the idea is that there's a big problem to solve and that the only way you're going to solve a big problem is have many players that hit that problem from different sides. It's very unusual to find an organization that can somehow take it all themselves. Yeah, there's enough there for everybody if we can get the tide to rise. Yeah, and I think also the thing I learned out of this uh, work around ecosystems is that for ecosystems to really work, you do need to define them around solving some kind of a customer issue. It can't be an ecosystem that's self-serving, right? Well, it's just all about the companies who participate in this somehow getting something out of it. So if it is uh, orchestrated around really solving a customer issue, and then the way you participate in that ecosystem is not just with the intent to get something out of it, but making sure that you're contributing to the others in the ecosystem, that the ecosystem is winning because of your participation. And some of the companies that we spoke to actually had specific roles in their leadership team whose job was to make sure that they were representing the ecosystem in the leadership team and how decisions were getting made. Again, not just focused on what can we as the individual company get out of the ecosystem, but are we actually adding value and making sure that, you know, actually everybody wins together in that ecosystem? And what was the gap at Komatsu between somebody saying we should create this ecosystem and anybody being able to see any tangible value? Because it's a big leap. There's no doubt it's a big leap. And, and again, you can keep renting equipment, you can keep selling equipment, right? And presumably they may have been fine doing that. I think the difference is, understanding that over time, A, you would create significant improvement for the whole system if we could run construction sites more efficiently. There was just a very obvious challenge there. And Komatsu probably with its equipment could benefit from that, right? I mean, if we're doing more work and we're going on to the next job. So I think they could see that, but I think more powerful was if we could get data on how this construction site worked, imagine the improvements we could make to our own innovation cycle right, where products would be able to solve some of these issues, use the data. And so often you do have to create that capability. You've got to show people where it's going. By the way, some amazing examples of ecosystems sit in other places. Think about restaurants and towns, right, that benefit when that town does the right thing or where there's other businesses that attract visitors, right? Lots of ecosystems exist, but they're not managed. But then every once in a while, someone says, hey, hold on a second, if we manage this together, To your point, all boats are going to rise. Let's invest in this together. But too often we're sitting in ecosystems and we're kind of letting it happen. We're either taking advantage of things being wonderful or we pay the price. But I think Komatsu is an example, to your point, of seeing the future and then investing in it with a data infrastructure, tools and systems to actually bring people together. 
as you were talking, I was thinking that's because what they did is they lined up behind a new purpose and they saw their purpose about making construction more efficient and therefore investing in the ecosystem is in direct line of sight with that as opposed to we sell earth moving equipment actually the the ecosystem there's a, an organization in here in south of england called business south and they did exactly that they realized southampton was the busiest cruise ship terminal in the uk but the people who ran the coaches the airports the council nobody talked to each other and so if you came off a cruise ship and your flight was in the afternoon, you had no option other than to go to the airport and sit at the airport all day because you had nowhere to, nothing, you couldn't do anything with your luggage. You couldn't walk over from the cruise terminal and into the the shopping mall, uh, West Key, and spend money because you had to go and sit on your luggage in the airport. And so there was just a whole load of little things that you could just get, and signage, you know, it used to say Dock 10, it didn't say the name of the boat, or Gate 10, didn't say the name of the boat. So there was a whole load of little things that were really, really, really easy to fix. And it just took somebody, Sally, actually, Sally Lasky came, got everybody together in a room and banged some heads together and made massive progress really quickly. I love that example. And even at Komatsu, also what motivated them too was there was a real customer issue they had to solve, which is that in the construction industry in Japan, they actually just didn't have enough talent. They didn't have enough people who wanted to sign up to go work in construction anymore. And that was creating also a lot of the delays on these jobs. That's why they needed to coordinate jobs better. They needed to get much more efficient. Obviously, they had to improve safety. They had to improve quality, all these other other things. And you know, when they started to get interested around solving that bigger issue for their customers is what really motivated the whole system towards the ecosystem. Yeah, this is why often we, we describe some of these ecosystems as needing an orchestrator, right? So rather than a platform provider, you know, like an Amazon uh, and many others, we have orchestrators that essentially say, you know what, we're going to sit in the middle of this and we're going to coordinate everything so that we create that outcome that we need to create. What is that big problem we're going to solve? Let's sit and start to figure out how we can work with everyone. And so your example is a wonderful example. I think Komatsu played that role. We see many of these emerging. I think Philips, right, in healthcare, it's like healthcare, if you really want the right solution, like a, a hospital on its own sees the inpatient and then you leave. But a lot of these things are, you know, they start before you show up and they, they unfortunately often continue once you leave. So healthcare is a perfect environment where we need these ecosystems to come together. I mean, society, we as human beings need these to be built. Oh, because it's so uh, lumpy and inefficient. And the current players are operating in the boundaries that are set for them by their, you know, their regulatory or their the way in which they're funded. They can't put money anywhere else. And so without an ecosystem, you know, they could collaborate, but they can't invest. And it's also, I think, too much of a zero-sum game, right, in that model. And, you know, one of the other ecosystem stories that I love from the book is about Titan, which is the largest consumer company in India's Tata Group. And it was their story around the jewelry industry and how at first they thought they would own that industry by bringing in modern technology and digitization and so forth. And they spent a bunch of money on going after that. And they thought, look, we're going to disrupt the industry and take it all over. And it ended up not working very well for them and didn't pay off at all because customers really wanted the artisanal quality jewelry that they'd been used to from their local jewelers, wherever they lived, right? And so then they had to say, well, hang on a second. How do we actually engage with this ecosystem of artisans 
And when they looked at their living conditions and how they operated, they said, look, if we're going to really make this work, it's not just about hiring some of these folks. We actually have to invest in that to make their lives better and improve conditions for them, give them a real opportunity to have a real income and a real life uh, in this type of career. And when they set about doing that, we not only have they blown the lid off of being able to sell artisanal jewelry at scale with a modern retail experience and all the things that come with uh, digital insight and so forth, but they've actually you know, created whole new futures and an income right, for an industry that was otherwise but in, always been subscale in some way. That's a fascinating example, isn't it? You take an organization that says, right, we're going to put all of these artisanal jewelry makers out of business. And then in, they had to do a complete 180 and say, actually, what we're going to do is we're going to raise up their living standards. And that's now our business model, which is totally different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and double their revenue and profit as a result, which is, hey, <laughs> that's brilliant, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely fantastic. Guys, what is it that you now know and it might be as a result of doing this work, or it might just be of broader life experiences. What is it you now know that you wish you'd known earlier? I think there's a few of these topics that um, are so obvious, uh, like the leadership team piece. And I think, you know, 20 years ago, this has been true, right? That leadership teams needed to advance the mission. So I think that learning uh, is certainly something that I wish uh, I had been probably more aware of in all of my work and research before. I think the other one is privilege insights. I mean, you know, again, I've been a big user and believer in, in market research. I think it's wonderful, right? Like go get all this information and, you know, make the most of it. But this concept of turning that on its head and not thinking about it as insights per se, but engagement and building trust. I think that's such an important concept. So I'd, I'd mention those two. For me, it is the importance of leaders actually working on their own development I mean, I always sort of knew that somewhere in the back of my mind, but, you know, I swept it aside as well. Yeah, but that's less important than everything else that I'm doing. And what I've learned now is actually it's fundamentally important to be effective and actually create the value that you want as an organization. So I think that's a big one. And the second one is around outcome-oriented teams and why it's so important actually to break up the old functional organization and allow people to collaborate in a way where they feel like their career isn't going to get interrupted because they've got to worry about getting the next promotion you know, with their, from their functional boss, that they can actually solve a real customer issue. Again, you know, I probably made a lot of money as a consultant selling all kinds of complex organization structures and racing models and so forth. And if I could go back now, I, I might have some different advice. Ah, that's very good. That is very good. So Beyond Digital, available from all good booksellers and Amazon. What other books are you reading? Have you read? Would you recommend? Well, I'm reading one right now, <laughs> which is a, actually quite an interesting read. It's called Elusive Nonviolence. And it's all about as it says, the making and unmaking of Gandhi's religion of Ahimsa. So uh, all the, <laughs> and, and really all about, yeah, how Gandhi uh, uh, went about his agenda of nonviolence and uh, what has now been used to work. So quite interesting so far. I just started a book um, written by a, a colleague of mine called A Brief History into a Perfect Future. And it's it's really about thinking of the world in, you know, 30 years from now, 
how do we set up and use technology and all the capabilities that have kind of been made available and will be made available to solve some of society's biggest challenges. It's got a subtitle that talks about, you know, got to leave this environment for our kids in a better place. So it's pretty inspiring and it's really well written. Um, at least what I've, what I've seen so far, highly recommend it. Very good. And do you, what's your, do either of you have a favorite book on strategy by, or transformation by somebody else? The one I like, it's not really about strategy or transformation. It's a book called The Wisdom of Crowds. I find that uh, quite informative just in my own work in business and why it's important to actually understand, as Paul says, why it's so important to get privileged insights and really get to the source uh, and hear from your customer. And that really, I think, is a very powerful source for, for any kind of transformation and indeed you know, creating value in business. It's so funny when you said wisdom, I thought you were going to say the wisdom of teams, which would have been my recommendation. Uh, and that's by Katzenbach and really talks about, you know, effective teaming. Uh, and he's got all kinds of amazing stories, uh, you know, from military to lots of businesses about how people actually really come together in groups to do incredible things. And I think that's, you know, really applicable to so many problems that we have today. That's fantastic. That one I haven't read. So I'll go and uh, get that on Audible. I'll actually throw another one at you, which is 10 Years to Midnight. That's a book written by actually one of our colleagues, Blair Shepard, which I highly recommend. It's a quick read, but it is really gripping and compelling. And it's all around how Blair lays out in his view that as leaders and as business leaders, we have 10 years within which to solve some of the significant challenges that society faces, whether that's around sustainability or equity or quality air or good food or any of the other challenges that we're confronted with. And he just lays out a very powerful rationale for why we need to act now and also how we as leaders can start uh, shifting our behaviors to, to really leave the planet in a better place for the next generation. Very good. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a great book and it connects actually to some of those leadership trade-offs that we cover in Beyond Digital as well. Fantastic. Gentlemen, Matt, Paul, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Dom. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.